0: Well, welcome to week 14 of our Believe series as we unpack what it means to live out the story of the Bible to become like Jesus. This 30-week journey takes us through what it means to think and act and be like Jesus, and we're right in the middle part of that, the acting. We've looked at 10 weeks of how we're supposed to think to be like Jesus, and now we are looking at the act portion of how we take those ideas and how we live them out. And then in the future, we'll look at 10 weeks of... What that does to help us become like Jesus. And so on the the thinking and the acting uh, spectrum with the presence of God right in the middle of that. Because without the presence of God, we're hopeless. We we cannot accomplish this. We cannot become more like Jesus without the presence of God uh, driving us. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us the ability uh, to become like Christ. That's why uh, Jesus had told his first disciples to wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon them so they can have the power Uh, to be what God has called them to be. And all through the scripture, we see that it's the power of the Holy Spirit uh, that works through their lives. And so as we look at this idea of acting like what God would want us to act like, we have a video intro for this week's theme, which is going to be uh, single-mindedness. So if you'll watch the video with me.
1: time when Israel was divided into two kingdoms, a king named Jehoshaphat, the ruler of the kingdom named Judah, heard that two armies were on their way to attack his kingdom. So Jehoshaphat told the people of Judah to fast and pray to God for help. People from every town of Judah gathered at the temple in Jerusalem to pray. Jehoshaphat stood up in front of everyone and prayed. He asked God to show them how to avoid the oncoming attack. We have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us, Jehoshaphat prayed. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. All of the people of Judah, men, women, and children, stood and waited for direction from God. Then God's spirit directed a man named Jehoshaphat to share something. not be afraid or discouraged, he told the people, for the battle is not yours, but God's. The armies of Judah should take up their battle positions, but God will fight the battle for them. Early the next morning, that's exactly what they did. Jehoshaphat encouraged the soldiers and all the people, have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be successful. As the opposing armies marched toward them, Jehoshaphat instructed a group of men to sing to God in worship. As they began to sing, the two armies that were coming to attack Judah suddenly began fighting one another. They completely destroyed each other without the people of Judah ever having to fight. Finally, they returned to the temple in Jerusalem to praise God by playing harps, trumpets, and other instruments. As other nations heard about what happened, They were so fearful that they didn't dare attack Judah. And the people of Judah lived in peace during the rest of Jehoshaphat's
0: reign. That's a crazy story. Imagine that you're being attacked, and your recourse is singing. That's not the only time something like that happens in the pages of scripture, Uh, but this is an example of a case in point where the people of Israel kept their focus in the right place. They kept it on God. Uh, This particular passage about Jehoshaphat, we are going to unpack further uh, on Wednesday. Um, the way we do this series is we begin it on a Sunday and then we further unpack the videos usually on on Wednesday with the kids and the teens etc um, but today we are going to take this idea of the single-mindedness that we saw in the video and in this portion of scripture and we're going to look at some other passages of scripture and our own lives and see how this fits into our lives not only did Jehoshaphat trust God, but he stayed focused on the task at hand, following God. And that is the challenge that you and I have. That when all the different distractions are coming into our lives, that we would stay focused on God and what God is doing. Because the truth of the matter is that we're very easily distracted. I don't know when the last time you've seen a parade was, but in the parade, there's normally horses in the parade, and you'll see that Almost all the time, there might have been a time or two I've seen where this didn't occur, but almost all the time, the horses have something on their eyes. They have blinders on their eyes. And that is so that they cannot see out of the sides. They cannot see the peripheral. They can only see what is in front of them. That's to keep them from being spooked, to keep them from seeing the distractions all around them, so that they have almost tunnel vision. So they they would be focused on the task at hand. And the truth of the matter is that we're wildly distracted in our, our culture and our age. And I am a great offender myself. This is something that we really have to contemplate. And then we have to do something about it. Almost everyone, it seems, is being diagnosed with the inability to focus. We all have ADD. You know, it wasn't long ago when nobody had ADD. Now almost everybody has ADD. And we don't have time to get into where that all comes from. But the truth of the matter is that we're a highly distracted culture and we're highly distracted people. And as Christians, we have to think through this. Okay? You might be offered a pill or a concoction or a drink or this or that to help you refocus. But we're going to see in the scriptures that there's something else we can do also. God's word is going to help us zero in on, on what it is we need to do. We're also going to see that there's this this triad, this triad of things that really gets in our way worry, anxiety, and fear. Yes, Scripture and God Himself calls us to a life of single mindedness, a practice, a lived out lifestyle that keeps God front and center 24 7. Not just on Sunday. To be single minded is to be undistracted from your goal. So the question for us today is, what distracts us from the goal given to us by Jesus Himself? Every one of us gets distracted. There's no one that doesn't. I get distracted. I get distracted while I'm writing a sermon. You know, I'm, I'm there at the computer, and, and Facebook dings, and Cheryl sends me a text, and you know, all these different things. And so you're like, do I answer it? Do I not? You know? And then I'm waiting. You know, this uh, this new part-time job I'm, I'm starting tomorrow. It, she was supposed to send me the schedule last night. I was like, do I check and see if she sent it? You know, So I checked my email to see if she sent it, and she, you know, she, it didn't come until way late. So um, all these things, and even in the topic of studying or preparing something, writing a book, a sermon, it doesn't matter what it is, every time you're turning your attention to something else, you're losing focus. You're distracted. You're losing ground in what you're trying to accomplish. Multitasking is actually not – Beneficial for focusing. You can only focus 100% on one thing. You know, you've learned the acronyms like Joy, Jesus, Others, Yourself, or WWJD, What Would Jesus Do? And these are all great things, and they're to help us keep Jesus front and center, but the truth of the matter is that, you know, they don't always work. Or we forget them. Or something very highly distracting comes up. Uh, my wife and I like to watch this uh, show, uh, Flashpoint. And there was an episode we watched this past week where uh, this guy, uh, Spike, he is like, uh, he's the tech guy. He's the bomb guy. He's, he's an amazing guy. Um, I don't know if in real life he is, but anyways, on the show. And anyways, he is trying to um, deal with a bomb that's inside a big mailbox thing. So it's big, okay? And they've already had two bombs go off and it's ticking literally like they only have minutes left they're trapped underground and the people there are going to die including him and then the building is going to come down and with only a few minutes left he gets a phone call on his personal cell and does he answer it yes he answers it and you're like what are you doing there's a bomb about to go off right well, it, it turns out that it's his mom and his dad's in the hospital and he might not make it through the day. And so now you're like, well, my goodness, Well, w- which one is higher priority? I don't know. You tell me. But the point is, you're in the middle of trying to stop a bomb from detonating so people don't die and a building doesn't come down and a phone rings. You see, I know that that's a make-believe scenario, or at least – The show was make-believe. But in our own lives, the same thing happens. Whether it's Twitter, Facebook, email, or or whatever, or something that happens just in our life. This past week, as I got ready for the day, I put on my shoes, and almost immediately I felt something in my shoe. You know? You've been there, right? It's a pebble or something probably, right? So what do you do? You take your shoe off, and you shake it out, you dump it upside down, and and you hope you see a pebble drop out because that means solution, Right? Well, that wasn't the problem. It didn't fix it. I put my shoe back on, and it was still there. So I took my shoe back off again. So this time, like, well, maybe there's something in my sock. You know, so I'm checking my sock. Is there something in my sock? No, don't see nothing there. Check the shoe again. Don't see anything there. Put it back on. No, still there. Take the shoe off again. Turn the shoe upside down. What did I find? Except it wasn't a nail. I thought it would have been a nail. I pulled this thing out, and I kid you not, it was an inch and a half or, or so piece of a twig, a stick. Now, I don't know how it got all the way through my sole of my shoe, but it was a stick sticking all the way through. So, yeah, it felt just like a nail, except that it was from a tree, not a nail. Yeah, I was distracted. Every time I put my, my foot in my shoe, there was that thing. It was, it was just in my way. I had to get rid of it so that I could focus on the other things. There's many things that distract us. I don't know if you know much about rhinoceroses, but rhinoceroses are kind of amazing. They've got this whole body armor thing on them, but they can only see about 30 feet in front of them, and they, they run 30 miles an hour when they charge something. And so you, you realize they're not seeing very far ahead of where they're going to end up in just a second, right? But the thing is that when something gets in their way or something out of the ordinary shows up, you know what they do? They charge it. It either moves or they move it. And what you need to do and what I need to do is we need to rhino some things. We need to charge some things, get them out of the way. When the rhino charges, either it moves or the rhino moves it. And that's what we got to do. There's some stuff that's distracting us. And so today I want you to begin thinking about what those things are and we need to charge them. We need to rhino them. We need to get them gone. Our key verse today is Matthew chapter 6 verse 33. Matthew 6:33 says, "But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you." So we see a couple of things in this verse. First, your focus is supposed to be on God and his kingdom. This is a well-known passage. You've heard me quote it or say it to you multiple, multiple times over the years. If you keep the focus that is on God and his kingdom, he's going to provide you some things. Well, we'll look at what these things are in a few minutes. But these things are if you keep your focus on the kingdom. Now, last week we learned about studying the Bible. And so we're going to have to do that a little bit today to figure out what Jesus is talking about. When he says, seek first his kingdom, and then he'll provide these things. And so, in order to do that, we're going to need to look at a larger portion of Scripture to understand our key verse. So, Matthew 6, starting in verse 24, I'll put it on the screen, and um, I will read it, and then we'll explain a little bit about it. And as I'm reading through this, you follow along and, and see what you pick up being repeated here. It says, no one can, can be a slave of two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one And despise the other. You cannot be slaves of God and of money. This is why I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add a single cubit to his height by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Learn how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. And that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown in the furnace tomorrow. Won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the idolaters eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now let me ask you, what word was repeated six times in that passage? Don't worry. Worry. The word worry was repeated six times in our passage. Six times. And so as, as we look at this, You got to answer the question of what is worry now I've often said worry is negative meditation and it is meditation is when you continually run a scripture through your mind you're you're chewing on the scripture you're thinking on the scripture and so worry is negative meditation instead of thinking about scriptures you're thinking about all these things that could happen that might happen we worry about things that are outside of our control which is why worrying is useless not that I don't do it also but it's pointless you can't do anything about it So, why would you worry and stress about it? So, you worry, then you stress, then you get your stomach upset, then you probably get a headache, and you can't sleep. And so, yeah, your life's just a mess all over something you have no control over anyways. And so, Jesus says, trust me. Seek me my kingdom first, okay? So, the other thing is that worry divides our mind. It shifts our focus. It breeds anxiety and fear so that we can't think straight. Sometimes we can't even function because our mind is so divided. So the key question for us today is, how do I keep my focus on Jesus amid the distractions? When I'm tempted to worry, when I'm tempted to be all distracted by this or that or the other thing, how do I keep my focus on Jesus? How do I have, like, the little icon on our our screen, it'll be on each screen, every week there's always a different one, and it goes with the message for the week, but you have an eyeglass there. Not, not like the ones you've put on your face. You know, the ones they use on the ship, right? They look through them. And when you're looking through that, it's kind of like with binoculars or a scope on a gun. It's just like the horse. You kind of had blinders on. Your peripheral is gone. You are zeroed in. You're focused on a particular point, a particular object, a goal. Then that's the deal with Jesus. He says, seek my kingdom first. Okay, and I'll provide for you, but we too easily are led astray by the distractions. Look at what Philippians 4.6 says about worry. It's a famous passage. It says, don't worry about anything. Don't worry about what? Anything. Yeah, anything. Yeah, that's a little difficult, right? But in everything, everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So instead of worrying about something, he says... Talk to me about it, Kevin. Just come to me. Let let me know. All right? Bring it to me. I've often paraphrased this as worry not, pray a lot. That kind of sums up the verse. While this, this is true, this provides only one aspect to removing worry and releasing what God has called us to do and to be. By not worrying, we're freed up to do something for God and for good. And so stopping the worrying and changing that to prayer, that's a good start. We eliminate this worry, this distraction, which causes us to be double-minded. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But our mind is split when you're worrying. You know, how many times have you had something in your mind, and, and you know what the Bible says about it, but at the same time, you're worried about it? And and you go back and forth between, I'm trusting God for it, and, yeah, but I really don't know what's going to happen, and so I'm worrying about it. And then, no, stop, I'm going to trust God. And then, a little bit later, but I really am not sure what's going to happen, and so I'm worrying about it. And you go back and forth. You're tossed to and fro, unstable in all your ways, as we'll see in a minute, James says. So I want us to focus on a few things today. Here's, Here's three things. I want us to focus on the who and not the what. And by the who, I mean Jesus, the Christ. So the what is the problem. Whatever it is you think is worrying you. Focus on the who instead of the what. You need to focus on Jesus. You know, when Peter and Jesus were out on on the water, and Peter got out of that boat and he was walking on the water, as long as his focus was on Jesus, he was fine. But as soon as his focus went to the what? The waves. He began to sink. you got to keep your focus on who? Jesus. That Jesus came, you got to believe that. That he resurrected, you got to believe that. That he's coming back again, you got to believe that. So the time may be long in our book, but it's short in his book. And so we need to be busy about our father's business. Seek you first the kingdom of God. The second thing is that you need to focus on the known and not the unknown. The known. What, what do we know? We know many things as you study scripture. Which is why last week's message about Bible study is so important. You have to study the scriptures so that you can know God better, so you can know uh, what he's doing and what he plans to do. But there's many things that you don't know. There's many things that I don't know. Tomorrow brings many unknown things. But we need to focus on the known. What does the known say? To know God, then you can know what some of the known is. In Colossians chapter 3, this will not be on your screen, but in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, we read... If you have been raised with the Messiah, seek what is above, where the Messiah is, seated at the right hand of God. Here it is, verse 2. Set your minds on what is above, not on what is on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with the Messiah in God. When the Messiah who is your life is revealed, you also will be revealed with him in glory. You need to set your mind on things above. The book of Hebrews talks about the same thing. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Focus on the known, not the unknown a lot of things that you and I don't know. We really have no idea what's going to happen this afternoon. I mean, we have a plan. You know, lunch is in the oven. We're, we're planning on having lunch. You know, but something could happen and disrupt that. But if you know God, if you know Christ, and this is where, listen, guys, this is so easy for me to, to teach Scripture But it's just as hard for me to live it as it is you. I have to choose to. Sometimes it's actually more difficult, maybe, because I study and teach so often that there's so much that I know. But what matters is what I live. You know, we've got to live. And that's this whole point, moving from thinking to acting to becoming the people that God's called us to be. You focus on the known and not the unknown. And the thirdly, you focus on truth, not trash. In Philippians chapter 4, this is another very well-known passage. For those of you that don't know many scriptures, these are some of the the first scriptures I learned. Philippians 4.8, Philippians 4.6, these are very critical scriptures for our walk with the Lord. In Philippians uh, chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is any praise, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Purity. The truth. Pure thoughts. Again, these three all go together. What do you know for truth? Do you know that God loves you? Do you know that you're secure in Christ? Do you know that Christ is coming back? Then think on the things that are pure and lovely. Think on the truth. And then, Paul says, do them. Live them out. So, that brings us to the idea of working and not worrying. Rather than spend our time worrying, God expects us to trust him and do good to all that we can. Good works, which we were created to do, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, but they don't save us, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. It's basically anything you do with faith. Now I want to drill down on this for just a minute because this is an area we have confusion in the church. This is an area we really don't talk about much in the church. Doing good. This can include mission trips, okay? That's what we think about, you know, when we think about doing good for somebody, but it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to include a mission trip. But it does include living your life for God and with God. This is part of what Micah 6.8 includes. When Micah says, mankind, he has told you what is good. And what it is the Lord requires of you. To act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God in Micah 6.8. That is what we are about to do good is to put in practice and live out what Micah is talking about so to be single minded is to seek God's kingdom first yes it means that we have to focus on the who and not the what to focus on the known and not the unknown to focus on the truth and not the trash but it also means that as we do that we move into not just where our focus is but that's going to drive us to doing something to doing something and what is that something? It's doing good to all we can. Yes, mission trips are great. But what about in between the mission trips? You're supposed to be doing good then, too. What about all day today? You're supposed to be doing good. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are created by God. Where is workmanship? To do good works. Works that He created for us to do actually before the foundations of the world. So what are those works that he created? When we're talking about a single-minded focus, so frequently we talk about just, what I'm going to term for lack of a better phrase, spiritual aspects. Now, there really is no spiritual and secular. It's all spiritual, okay? But churchy stuff, okay? So, yes, your prayer, your Bible study, missions trips, Bible studies, all these types of things, which are all good. They're crucial. They're foundational. They're critical for your growth. But how many times do you go through the day and you're just wondering, like, does any of this that I'm doing matter? Like, what about all this day-to-day stuff? Everyone that's in this room was parented by somebody. You were birthed by a mom. You know, parenting and and being a mom uh, takes a lot of work. It's tiring, it can be frustrating, and it takes many years. All of those times, just think about it for a minute. If you're 10, think about how long your mom's been in your life. If you're 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or however old you are, think about all those years invested. Minute after minute, hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. That adds up. Right? There's a lot of monotony in there. How do, you, how do you live for God? How do you do good in all this monotony? If you've ever worked at a job, after you get used to the jobs, many jobs get a little boring at times. What do you do with that? And how does that fit in to what God is calling us to do? Good works are anything that does good and is done in faith. Right? Think about that. Good works are anything that does good and is done in faith. According to 1 Timothy 5.10, raising children is a good work. Think about that. The Bible says, God says that raising children is a good work. Now, raising children is two words. Raising children. <laughs> but it's a whole lot more than two words. All right, To raise children takes a lot. And God says it's a good work. That means everything that's included with that. The whole parenting aspect. Cooking for them. Cleaning for them. Teaching them how to cook for themselves. Teaching them how to clean for themselves. Teaching them to take a shower. All right? All of these things, okay? Teaching them to wash their own clothes. I remember when I was in middle school. I think it was right after I got my paper out. So I had a little money now. My mom took me in. She showed me the washing machine. She showed me how to do a load. She took me down to the basement to the dryer. She showed me how to do a load. She said, from now on, you do your own laundry, and you buy your own clothes. That's what happens when you get a job. That's parenting. That's raising children. God says that's a good work. Dan Cathy of Chick-fil-A He said, let your light so shine before others that they may see your clean parking lots and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now, if you know the scriptures, you might recognize that that's a slight twist on what Jesus said about letting your light shine. Now, is is he ruining the scripture? Or is he taking the scripture and applying it in a specific way? Does God care about clean parking lots? Dan Cathy thinks so. Chick-fil-A thinks so. The question is, what do you think? Does God care about clean parking lots? Is that part of doing good works? Is that part of having a single-minded focus where everything in your life is supposed to reflect the glory of God? When Paul writes elsewhere in Scripture that whatever you do is supposed to be done to the glory of God, whatever you do would include a parking lot if you own a Chick-fil-A, right? Now, you might not have a parking lot, right? So you're not responsible for a parking lot. But if you've got a Chick-fil-A, you got a parking lot. Right? Maybe you have a driveway, though. So if Dan Cathy thinks that his parking lots should not be filled with trash, then maybe our driveway shouldn't be filled with trash. Right? If Dan Cathy's responsibility is to take care of the parking lots at Chick-fil-A, then, and you don't have a parking lot, but you have a driveway, then maybe it's your responsibility to do good and demonstrate to the world that you follow God by taking care of the driveway. I know we never talk about driveways in here, but we have talked about when we're at the park, right? We don't leave our trash because it's whose park? Yes, it's Jesus' park. It's God's park, okay? And so we're going to take care of the park, right? Well, if you have a house and a driveway, then he gave you a driveway to take care of. If you have a bedroom, he gave you a bedroom to take care of. God cares about the smallest thing. Think about this. Elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus says you'll have to give an account for every word that comes out of your mouth. Also, your thoughts. If you have to give an account for your thoughts and your words, also, he says later, your actions, well, wouldn't it make sense, without even looking at other scriptures, that that would also include everything in your life? This comes under the topic of stewardship, which we discussed a month or so ago. And so, when Dan Cathy says this, I think he has it right. God cares about what you do all day long, guys. When you're making meals for someone, answering emails or phone calls, designing a building for someone, helping with homework, doing schoolwork, helping a classmate, helping a coach, everything you do can be an agent of good for God. Everything. Everything. In James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, James writes, Now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. An indecisive man is unstable in all his ways. Now, see, here we have the opposite of single mindedness we have double minded, and the double minded man is unstable. Yeah, I know what this is like, too. Can you imagine? If you were sent to the grocery store and you never bought cereal before and you're told to go buy a box of cereal and you went to the grocery store and you went to the cereal aisle which box are you gonna buy? I mean there's literally hundreds of choices which one do you buy you're like yeah I bought my favorite one. Well okay that's fine what if you've never had cereal before? Like, there's too many choices. And honestly, that's part of our problem in our culture. There's too many choices. There is now too much information. Over the last week and a half, I went through my inbox and my emails. Because I had 10,000. It's not a joke. 10,000 emails in my inbox. 10,000. It's down to like 550 right now. It took me hours to siphon through that. So what happens is I have to unsubscribe from all these ones I don't read, and here's what will happen. I'm a researcher and a reader. So over the next month, I'll find a bunch more newsletters that I'm like, yeah, I want to read more about that, and I'll sign up for them. Unless I don't let myself. Now, I got them out of my inbox, but I've got to tell you, I also have all these other folders of other ones that I haven't read either. So... The truth is that when, when you're a knowledge monger, when you like to read and research like I do, yeah, there's too much. And so I have to learn how to manage this better. I'm not good at it. I want to read all of it. The first question people ask me when they see my library is, have you read all these books? Well, no, I haven't read all these books. Someday, though, if I ever live long enough, you know, I'd like to. But I probably won't get to all of them. James. James is steeped in the Old Testament. The main idea of Old Testament wisdom is that of skill. So when James says that you should ask God for wisdom, okay, God gives wisdom. He gives skill. And this includes the skill of workers who made garments for the high priest and who were able to work with metal, stone, and wood in Exodus 28 and 31. It also extends to those who are able to execute a battle plan. Isaiah chapter 10 verse 13 Lead in government, Deuteronomy thirty-four nine, and even shrewdly assess a difficult situation and persuade others to take necessary action in Second Samuel chapter twenty verse twenty-two. It refers to those who speak prudently in Psalm thirty-seven thirty and who use their time carefully in Psalm ninety verse twelve. See, we often think this verse in James says, "If you lack wisdom, ask God." And w- and we're asking God for wisdom. And what we're wanting, and I've done this so many times I can't count, and what we're wanting is for God to write the answer on the wall for us. And that's the wisdom that we think it means. That's not what it's talking about. That's not what James is dealing with. James is dealing with the concept of wisdom that's all through the Old Testament. Wisdom is about skillfully navigating through life. Wisdom is about knowing how to make the right choice in the situation to honor God, to be single-mindedly focused on God. Biblical wisdom focuses on practical living in obedience to God's revealed will. The fool, in Proverbs, is not the man who is mentally deficient. He's the man who is morally deficient. He ignores God's commands and lives according to human wisdom. The wise man lives in obedience to God, and thus he skillfully puts together a life that is beautiful from God's perspective. Let me say that again. This is important. The wise man lives in obedience to God, and thus he skillfully puts together a life that is beautiful from God's perspective. Does God look at your life and say that is beautiful? You've probably never thought about that before, right? That is the goal that God would look at our life and say that is beautiful. The fear of the Lord—that's the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs one seven. That's pretty similar to New Testament when Jesus says, "Seek first His kingdom." Matthew six thirty three, Proverbs one seven. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So by wisdom, James is talking about the skill that enables us to live obediently before God in the midst of trials. The book of James is all about maturity. How to be a mature Christian. Do you want to know how I read James, and I'll, I'll give you the lowdown on it, you've you got to go through a lot of trials. And that builds your patience and your maturity. So... By wisdom, James is talking about the skill that enables us to live obediently before God in the midst of trials. The result will be a truly beautiful life that glorifies God. We can see examples in Scripture of those who are double-minded. The psalmist equals them with deception in Psalm 12.2. Look at Psalm 12.2 with me. He says, they lie to one another. They speak with flattering lips and deceptive hearts. Deceptive hearts is this double-minded hearts thing. You see, they have one thing going on in their hearts and their minds, and they have another thing coming out of their lips. They speak flattery. What's that mean? They're trying to build you up, but they're fake. They're hypocrites. They don't really care about you. They're trying to make you feel good about yourself because they want to get something out of you. That's what flattery is. People that flatter you, they say all sorts of nice things, but really they just want to get something from you. That's not a genuine compliment. This is double-minded. This is thinking two different ways. This is when you go back and forth between worry and trusting God. This is when you can't make a decision because there's too many choices, and you are crippled by it. The number of choices in our culture, and I think that this is impacting our students. You know, 20 years ago, students didn't have the choices they have today. You know, over the last 20 plus years, we have created this culture where we've told students they can be anything they want to be, and because of all the advances we have, they can go to almost any college they want now. You just get, in, get on an airplane and go somewhere else. Right? That's not how it used to be. The choices are almost crippling. There's too many. Back in the day, it's not how it was. Your dad built houses? Yeah, you're going to build houses. How do you learn? Your dad teaches you. Pretty simple. Right? You don't need to go to college. Dad knows how to do it. He's going to teach you. Your dad works on shoes? Makes new shoes. What are you going to do? Bingo, shoes. Simple, right? So when Dad dies, we still got a shoe man in town. You, right? When Dad dies, we still got a house builder in town. You, right? Now that gets messed up if you leave town, right? Now who's going to take over when Dad dies? We have so many choices today. It's debilitating. <clears throat> when I decided to marry Melissa, I had to make a choice. All right. It was a little bit more serious than the the choice of cereal in the cereal aisle, all right? So it was my decision, though, all right? No one was forcing me to marry her. I didn't have to marry her. I chose to marry her, all right? There came a point where I had to make a decision. It was time to be all in or call it quits. I chose to be, obviously, all in, right? So you make a choice. You can't sit there all day and be double-minded. You can't keep going back and forth on it. At some point, you've got to make a choice and get all in from that point forward, there could be no second guessing, no going back and forth. In my mind, it was a done deal. Completely in. Right? That's how it works. That's what Jesus is saying. Seek first his kingdom. It's all in. No going back and forth anymore. You set your hands to the plow and you don't look back. If you're plowing, now you got to think old school plow. you got a horse or a mule in front of you and you got a hand plow. Okay, And you look back while you're plowing, what's going to happen? You're going to plow a crooked line. It's gonna be all messed up. You're gonna mess up the field. You gotta look straight ahead, plow straight ahead. When you said, Jesus, I wanna be your child. When you said, Jesus, forgive me of my sins, come into my life, be my Lord, be my savior. I believe you died, you buried, you rose on the third day. Bring me into your kingdom. When you said that, that day, just like Jesus told the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. That day you became a child of God. It's all forward from then. You don't look back, you keep going forward it's the focus. In 1 Chronicles chapter 12 verse 33, there's an interesting verse. In this this passage, the the men of of Israel, they are, are getting together and they're coming alongside David. They're deciding, are we going to support David? Will we support him as king? And we read in 1 Chronicles 12.33, from Zebulun, 50,000 who could serve in the army, trained for battle with all kinds of weapons of war, with one purpose, to help David. With one purpose, that's our phrase. Single-minded, fully committed, wholehearted, not double-hearted, not double-minded, all of them together. They say, yes, we will, with singleness of purpose and heart, come alongside David. David had posed the question to the representatives of Benjamin and Judah on whether they were going to come help or betray him. Up in verse uh, 18 in the same passage, their answer was decisively positive, And the soldiers from remote Zebulun, which sent more people than any other single tribe, were similarly resolute. All through this chapter, we see how these people from all the tribes, they come to be of one mind with David. Remember the psalm that we just read a minute ago. The psalmist criticized those who are double-minded. James criticized those who are double-minded. Paul demonstrates the very real manner in which we are easily distracted, often by good things, with his appeal to those who are single in 1 Corinthians 7. Here Paul exhorts them to live a life completely focused on God and extols the benefits of being single, not having the additional concerns of family, instead being able to completely focus on the work of God. Everybody is single for a season. Everybody, right? It might be for, I don't know, 16 years if you got married super young. It might be for 20 years. It might be, in my case, it was 38 years, okay? So everybody is single for a season. Some people are single for their whole lives, devoted to God. That's why Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew that some people have chosen to be eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. Paul's talking about the same thing here. He's saying, along with our topic, though, that if you get married, you need to understand. You have responsibilities you've taken on yourself. When you have children, you have to realize you have responsibilities you've taken on. Okay? When the little kid comes out screaming and crying, alright, you've got a responsibility. When the little boy or girl is hungry or thirsty or needs whatever, you've got a responsibility. You can't just keep watching your TV show or sleeping or whatever. You have a responsibility. Paul says, single-minded, focus on the Lord. You see, when you signed up in a sense, you have a responsibility now. Jesus gave it all for you. And when you became part of his mission and his plan, it comes with you being single-minded. To be double-minded in one sense is to be a double agent. It never goes well for double agents. The double-mindedness has to go. You need to rhino it. We need to charge it. We need to get rid of it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Every Christian must be fully Christian. By bringing God into his whole life, not merely into some spiritual realm. The whole life. See, that's what I want to drill down on. And when we do our table talk in just a few minutes, that's where you're going to focus on. What is it about your life in the day-to-day, okay, the times when you're not praying, reading the Bible, listening to sermons, etc., that you're doing good for God? That you're still advancing God's kingdom. How does cooking dinner advance God's kingdom? How does your work advance God's kingdom? How does you being at school advance God's kingdom? If, if you say the answer is it doesn't, you have a massive problem. Because what that means is... You've taken an entire chunk of your life. Think about it. You go to school seven or eight hours a day times five days. That's 40 hours, right? Or you go to work 40 plus hours. If that's got nothing to do with advancing God's kingdom, my goodness, we're wasting a lot of time. We need to reevaluate and figure out how does that have something to do with God's kingdom? And you don't have to work at a Christian school or teach Bible for it to have something to do with God's kingdom. If God cares about clean parking lots, And maybe he cares about unclogged pipes and unclogged toilets. Maybe he cares about roofs that don't leak. Maybe he cares about shoes that are actually beneficial for your feet. Maybe he cares about clothes. Maybe he cares about safety and construction. Do you know there's actually verses in the Bible about that? Deuteronomy. You're supposed to build this little thing, kind of like a fence, around the roof of your house. Like, what? Yeah. So, all of you that have a house that don't have a little fence around the top of it, you're sinners. No, just playing. Different time period. Okay. We don't have flat roofs. Okay. Which means ours are even less safe. They used to go up on the roofs and they'd have uh, gardens up there. They'd have picnics. They'd hang out. They'd do all sorts of stuff up there. And so, what did God say? He said, I want you to build a little fence type thing around there so no one falls off your roof. What's He caring about? He cares about people. He cares about their safety. Hmm. That seems like it could be a pretty boring and mundane thing. Yeah, it is. Imagine all the safety features that people have to think about when they build buildings. Have you ever thought about a bridge as you're driving over it? What if they cut the corners on it? No pun intended. Yeah? That wouldn't be good, would it? Let me give you another quote from William Wilberforce. Awesome man, awesome man. He said, you are everywhere commanded to be tender and sympathetic, diligent and useful. William Wilberforce helped end slavery. William Wilberforce helped lots of people in poverty on a regular basis. And animals. He had tons of them all over his place, I guess. You are everywhere commanded to be tender and sympathetic, diligent and useful. That sounds a lot like Micah 6.8. Sounds a lot like Ephesians 2.10. So our key idea today of single-mindedness, okay, we focus on God and his priorities for my life. That's what we need to do. We need to eliminate the distractions. We need to kind of put blinders on. We need to see singly as through the glass. Yes, you might not always see with clear focus. That's true. But we need to charge some things. We need to rhino some things out. eliminate even some of the things that are good for what's best. There's an awful lot of good stuff but maybe God's not calling you to do that. Maybe he's calling you to do something else. Good can often get in the way of best. Does everything in your life further the plan of God and what he's called you to do as his child? That's your question. So let's end this morning with the verse we started with in Matthew six thirty-three. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. As I pray, and then we'll break into our table talk time, we need to contemplate what this means on a a very minute level. We need to break this down into our daily lives. What does this look like, and how do we live in a manner consistent with this? Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the fact that your word actually touches on every little part of our lives. So often we don't think it does, but even the the minutiae, you care about the little things. You care about the little words we say. You care about how we live our lives. So I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts about how we are living our lives and how we can live our lives in a, a better manner for you through your power, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you as Savior today, that maybe today would be the day they realize that every aspect of their life, you died on the cross to redeem. And today could be the, the first day of a whole new life for them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.